Hi, everybody. I'm Sunny, and this is We Gotta Talk, a live weekly digital talk show and podcast where we like to dig deep. Real talk, big topics. Now, let's dig in. Hey, everybody. Welcome to We Gotta Talk. It's Sunny. I'm so glad you're here little solo episode today. I'm caffeinated. I'm ready to comment on pop culture topics and bring you up to speed on life. It's going to be great. We got a coffee machine at the house and I have not fully mastered it yet. It's one of those Breville machines that makes like the the fancy coffees, as Andrew says, makes everything but a regular coffee. He's like, oh, the coffee machine that doesn't make a regular coffee. It makes, you know, cappuccino, latte, Americanos, espressos. Um, And yeah, it's so good. Cannot figure out the frother on the milk, like the milk frother thing on that side of it. So if anybody has any tips, someone said it's all about how you tilt the liquid and then you get it to spin. But I get to this point where it starts to, like the level of the milk starts to rise to the top and almost boil over and it never works. I just cannot get that frothy consistency. (coughs) Excuse me. Wow. The relatability of this podcast is just off the charts today. Anyhow, um, yeah. How are you guys? How much good TV has there been lately? I don't know about you, but um, I'm looking for escapism in all of its forms lately and I have been just dying to talk about two shows in particular, and I thought it was fun last time when we talked about the Jeffrey Dahmer show and all of the nuance and complications with some of those plot lines and the dramatization of it all. And like you, likely, I am obsessed with uh, The White Lotus, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Harry and Meghan. I have so many thoughts on that. And, uh, and yeah, and I'm trying to like get out all of the solo episodes and doing of things that I need to do for the next week because this is top secret information. So if you know my children, don't say this. We're getting a dog in a week and I am literally about... I'm I'm on the verge of a ner- I'm in anticipation of a nervous breakdown and I don't say that lightly. Like I'm 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 mildly terrified. Now this is complicated because I had a dog growing up. I know that like it's so special for kids to be raised with pets, especially dogs and they're so great and loyal and sweet. But I have I mean like any mom have spent whatever the past 10 years of my life not feeling altogether rested or sane. And I'm like, what am I doing? Voluntarily bringing something else into this house that needs to be cleaned up after and taken care of and loved. But I'm actually, for the first time ever, like my kids have been asking about a dog for years now. And for the first time ever, I am feeling mentally ready. I feel like I'm at a point where I need something else to love, which is tragic in its own way, because I feel like you only get to that point after you're done having all of your kids and you're done with like the super, super baby stage of things. I know there are people who have dogs and babies at the same time. I'm just saying for me, I I needed a clear delineation between the two. I needed to do the kid thing first to get them past a certain age and stage and then do the kid, you know, then do the dog thing. So this to me is just like a real recognition of the fact that like the young season, like the baby season of my kids' lives is just done. It's kind of depressing. Um, but now I can love the dog. I can replace all of that 
um, ridiculous attention. I like to smother on my children and give it to a dog. I'm already planning on breaking all of the rules. He will be sleeping in bed with me. We will have no rules, regulations, and schedules. Um, yeah, so that should be great. Andrew has agreed to get up with him in the middle of the night too. So cheers to supportive spouses. Um, anyway, all right, let's get into, oh my God, let's get into the White Lotus. I I needed a place to vent. And like I said, I typically don't come on just to talk about TV shows, but this show is so, so good that I can't resist. I just can't resist. So spoiler alert, if you haven't watched the final episode, just stop playing now. Okay. We need to talk about, we need to talk about Jennifer Coolidge. Justice for Jennifer. Okay, so if anybody is watching, you know that she returns in season two as Tanya. And like the best way to describe her is this like tragic comic character, right? Like she's making all these decisions in her personal life that you're like, oh God, that's like horrible. You're not taking, you know, you're not with the right person. You're not... You know, you're not being cared for like you should. You kind of feel bad for her. She's this rich woman with all the money in the world to spend, but just cannot seem, she just cannot seem to find the right person to spend her time with and spend her money on. I died when she died in that show, I just must say. So first of all, I was not anticipating, like the the, the biggest, the, the most glaring plot line of all, which is these men were trying to kill her for her money so that they could they were working in cahoots with her husband so that they could then in turn split her riches. Like that was such an obvious plot line that I thought there was no way that it could actually end up happening. And lo and behold, it actually does. And I don't know about you guys, but as you know, the scenes in the last episode where she's partying in the, in the mansion, I think it was in Palermo and it's this gorgeous Italian villa and all these men, she's gay men that have, have lifted her spirits and elevated her as this goddess. And they're talking her up and they're giving her this attention and this love. And they created this big party in her honor. And I'm thinking, Oh my God, I'm already starting to get nervous because this is not you know, there's just something fishy on the, on the horizon. And so I was like, but listen, this, it can't go this way. This is way too obvious. The moment where she sees her husband in a picture with the owner of the villa, this gay man, and um, she realizes, oh my God, they have a history, not a romantic history, but you know, they have a friendship. And this was the guy that got away as the man told her. Um, her husband, meaning her husband was the one who got away. I was like, we can't end up going down. This is way too obvious. So the last episode comes of like waiting for her to not be in the middle of this death plot. And of course she is. And all of the men on the boat are toasting her. They anchor the boat off the coast, um, right, right near the hotel within, you know, seeing distance of the hotel. And they tell her, well, we're not going to go all the way in. The boat is too big. We're just going to anchor here for the night. And your gorgeous mafioso lover that you slept with at the party we threw for you is going to come back and take you on a dinghy, a romantic dinghy ride. That's a cue number one. When a mafioso is scheduled to be your sole escort in a boat made for two, we say no. Um, but I loved the power that she found in those last scenes. I love that she sniffed it out, of course, with Portia's help. I love that she locked herself in the bedroom. I love that she got her hands on the gun. I mean, she opens this bag and you see the rope and you see the gun and you see all these things, these instruments that were designed to kill her. And she's realizing, oh God, I got to do something. 
it felt so good to watch her. And this is horrible. This sounds horrible to say. It felt good to watch her take her fate back into her own hands and like get rid of the guys who were going to kill her. And I was in the moment where she is trying to get back off of the yacht into the boat. I call it a dinghy, but it's, you know, a boat, a small boat and, and falls to her death and smacks her head. I, a part of me died inside. I have fallen in love with this character since the first season in with all of her flaws and imperfections. And I was just devastated, devastated that they did her like that. And it was like, I was working out this morning and I was thinking about it. Like, how weird is that? I was like in this, you know, holding my plank in Pilates at 6 a.m. And I was like, but why? Why did we have to lose Tanya? I love her so much. But I do love to see that Jennifer Coolidge has like had the biggest resurgence in Hollywood. Like at my age, I remember her as Stifler's mom in the American Pie movies. And uh, it's just so cool to see her have this career resurgence. So although she can technically not be in season three of The White Lotus now, I look forward to seeing her everywhere on my screens, big screens, small screens. Oh, she was in The Watcher too, which is another show. Can't talk about that now, but um, if you haven't watched it, please do. Okay, we have to talk about the other lights, the, the light of the show, as far as I'm concerned. Lucia and Mia, the two lovable prostitutes. Oh my gosh, I was in my Italian lesson last week. And let me just set the stage for you. My friend and I are the youngest people in this weekly Italian lesson that's held at a community center by an average of two decades. This is not an exaggeration. The woman who runs this show and everybody from Pittsburgh who's listening will know what I'm talking about. She's like a she's like a chick from the rocks, an old Italian broad from the rocks, from McKee's Rocks. She's like, I am sitting at the end of this table. She's probably in her 70s. And McKee's Rocks is like an area outside of Pittsburgh that like all of the Italians landed in. I mean, we're just all there. My whole family is from there. It's just like generations and cousins upon cousins upon aunts. Like everyone Italian somehow is related to someone from the rocks in Pittsburgh. And so the lady who is my um, Italian, she's my second Italian teacher. So I'm like going all in on this. I've been doing the lessons with my friend who is a lovely, gorgeous young woman from Italy. And this is sort of my like supplemental lesson. We go once a week and we just practice talking. And um, so she's, oh God, she's probably in her mid seventies. That's like a, that's like a modest guess, like maybe older. I don't know. She got, she's got her gold chains on. She's got her quaffed hair going and <laughs> just dying. Anyway, I'm trying to explain in Italian this, sh the White Lotus, this show to people. I mean, starting age 65, right? And so it's like, there's nothing more embarrassing than trying to express your love for something in a, like a colloquial kind of fun way and having no fucking idea how to say it and embarrassing yourself in front of everyone in the class. So, um, I was saying last week to my Italian friends in this class what how great this show is and how you have to watch it and you have to watch it for the putas, which I think was like, I think it's a slang word for vagina. I, I don't know what it is. I know putanesca is like, we're going to look it up right now. But anyway, it's like, you know, a whore, right? And these women in the show are two sex workers. The old fashioned word for that was whore. So don't get offended. Don't at me. It's just the meaning of the word. So anyway, um, I was trying to explain to this class why they need to watch this show. It's set in Sicily, of course. And a bonus for someone trying to learn the language like me is that you get to listen to people, native speakers, like 
speak Italian and you can kind of like practice your listening and your interpretation. It's great. But, um, Point being, I have been trying to explain to everyone around me who is watching this show how they are the absolute, I think they're the spiritual and energetic center of this story. Just, there's a lot of heaviness happening, but every time Lucia comes on screen or Mia comes on screen, it's just an immediate lifting of the spirits. Um, they're just so good. I started following these girls on Instagram, even Valentina, who is the receptionist, all of these you know, native Italian actors who were part of the cast were, it was just such a joy. They were like the, the light part of this whole, whole, um, season for me. So anyway, love them. Feel like they're on the verge of great things as well. Um, we have to talk about, oh gosh, the couples too, right? So Cameron and Daphne and Ethan and Harper. Here's what I said to Andrew last night as we were watching. I, I see no redeeming qualities in Ethan. And I hate to say that. He's a great looking guy. He's, you know, his character is interesting, right? He's like the nerd who had, the nerd in college who had the big come up, sold the company, has a ton of money now. And it's interesting how from the beginning they set these couples apart as these sort of diametric opposites. So this couple is, um, you know, the serious... Um, non-frivolous, we are 100% honest with each other all the time, no matter the cost, couple versus Cameron and Daphne who are more, they just, there's a flirtatiousness between them. There's some untold secrets we come to discover over their fidelity. They kind of just, they play it light and free. They're always snuggling and they're very physically affectionate with each other and they're jokey. And so they did such a great job, I feel like, in setting up the contrast between these two characters. But um, I, uh, I, this was one of those parts of the finale that I felt like I put a bow on it and I felt like they did a good job in sort of making these characters come through their full arcs, but I still was not as like, eh, I don't know. It felt a little like flat to me relative to the other storylines. So here's my question. Um, you know, we come to find out that Cameron hits on Harper that there was a moment where they allegedly kissed and that's it. And then we see Daphne and Ethan have this moment where she acknowledges, he tells her, oh my God, don't you know what happened? Like our, my wife and your husband, I think they're hooking up, blah, blah, blah. And rather than get upset, Daphne's whole thing, this entire show has been, I, I just get even. I don't, I'm, I don't find joy in victimhood. And, and even if I'm, you know, even if my husband is, is, you know, cheating on me or treating me in a way, I would rather just go out and experience that myself and get my quote unquote revenge that way than go and kind of hold his feet to the flames. So here's what I want to know. So that moment where Daphne and Ethan acknowledge that their spouses have been unfaithful and they walk across that path and uh, the implication is they go and they hook up on this island, the Isola Bella. Um, do you think it happened? I think it happened. I think what they were trying to do with these characters is just complete an exact flip-flop of how they entered the season. So when they close out the episode, we see these two couples in the airport and all of a sudden, Ethan and Harper have this lightness to them. They have this flirtatiousness. They're cuddling, they're snuggling. And then Cameron and Daphne seem a little dull. They seem a little dimmed down from their original sort of presentation. They seem a little more serious. They seem... So anyway, uh, that was interesting to me how they did like kind of a flip-flop. These couples who came in with such strong tendencies either way kind of did a flip-flop. And now 
Um, now Ethan is the jerk husband cheating on his wife. And the, the It's come full circle. It's come full circle now. What was coolest for me watching this show, especially being, um, you know, someone who came up when The Sopranos was big, was seeing Michael Imperioli play. I don't even remember his character's name. I have to look it up. But Albie's dad, like the, the DeGrasso family. So there was the grandfather. Then there was Michael Imperioli, who was the father. And um, then there was Albie, who was the grandson. Um, it's just so fun to watch Michael Imperioli back in action. Um, shout out to his hair, who which has survived decades looking just pretty fabulous, relatively intact. His hairline is looking good. He is a little grayer than he used to be. He's a little pudgier than he used to be, but he's just such a good actor. I loved watching the dynamic of that family play out and related so much as well to like the style of the grandfather. If you had an Italian grandfather, if you're Italian at all, and one of the men in your family was old, you just, there is just this unspoken rule that all old Italian men wear like newsboy caps. My pap wore, I can't, it's like a newsboy hat. It was, I, you know, that like soft fabric, kind of pull it down over your forehead, kind of tilted to the side. And I feel like the DeGrasso grandfather had that on. I'm immediately endeared to people who, who look like people that I have known and loved. And I just... It was so great. Equally great, the scene where they tracked down their Sicilian relatives, these women, um, presumably their cousins and their great aunt, who immediately chased them out of their house in a fit of Italian rage. Just so classic. I Watching their family dynamic, which I don't know, it just felt familiar to me in some way. It feels like I kind of, I kind of knew those characters, you know? Um... Okay, before we move on, we also have to discuss Portia's wardrobe. So Portia plays the assistant to Jennifer Coolidge's character, Tanya. I think the actress's name is Haley Lou Richardson. <laughs> I just I could not. I, is this how Gen Z dresses is my question number one. And my question number two is, given that Gen Z is regurgitating a lot of the fashions that we unironically wore in the 90s, does that mean that we looked this weird too? <laughs> just so weird. I saw this meme going around and it was like how Portia picks her her clothes in White Lotus. And it was like one of those old fashioned video games where like, like in Clueless, where <laughs> there's the carousel of tops that goes in one direction on the top portion and the carousel of bottoms like skirts and pants. And you just randomly hit a button and it matches things that just look really fucking weird together. Um, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. I didn't get it. I didn't get it. It in the bag points if you remember that movie. It's big. It's big when Tom Hanks is being called out for being a weirdo working working at the corporation by the by the real man. Okay, anyway. Uh yeah, I don't get it. It was interesting to like her character was so good, but the Tommy Hilfiger shirt, the bucket hat, I mean, this is a gorgeous woman and seeing her dress like that physically pained me. Seeing the t-shirt the in toward in, in the in the last episode, I think it was like a couple of variations on blue, sort of paired with this floral. I just don't get it. I don't get the sweater vest with the swans. It was really. I mean, I is this how I guess this is how kids dress these days. And you know, I just couldn't comment on the show without commenting on that. She's a fantastic actress, though. Um, yeah, I love it. I love it so so much. If you guys. 
I would love to hear your thoughts on this. I, I Like I said, I feel... I don't know. I'm sad that it's over, most of all, but I feel unresolved in some of the endings. I feel like if we were going to take a character out, where's the moral justice? Shouldn't we have taken out Cameron or something? You know what I mean? Like the cheating, like lying spells. I don't know. Or there's some kind of social commentary on how no matter how much bad you do in life, there is no karma. There is no justice. I don't know what was going on in the creator's mind and Mike White's mind when he was writing this show, but I was fully depressed when I saw Jennifer's body, when I saw Tanya's body floating in that beautiful floral dress in the final scene and it all came together. Anyhow, we need to talk. So yeah, that's it. I had to share my thoughts on it. We also have to talk about the Meghan and Harry documentary. This is something else that if you haven't been watching on Netflix, I highly encourage you to do so. We talked about this on Instagram yesterday and I stand by a couple of the points I made. So full disclosure, not the biggest Megan fan. I, I don't know why. I feel kind of traitorous saying that. I really liked them in the beginning. This is so awful. And, you know, I like to think that ugh, people give people chance. People who are in the public eye are given a chance, right? Like people don't immediately form an opinion. But I, in my defense and in the defense of anyone else who might feel this way, feel like I was, my opinion was really tainted by the coverage of Megxit and how they left suddenly. And I had a really bad taste in my mouth after hearing some of the comments in the Oprah interview. Listen, I, I do stand by this. There are things that she and Harry have said on camera that are just best left on side. And this is coming from an Italian-American, American-Italian. We say everything. We say the bad stuff. We say the good stuff. If it happens at Starbucks, we say it in public. If it, ha You know, I'm not trying to hide. What I'm saying is I'm not a girl who tries to hide my shit. I am in full support of an airing of the dirty laundry. I do not think relationships can thrive without honesty. So I'm not coming at this from a point of view of being like, oh God, you should never discuss your family problems. You should tuck them away like British style, you know, not to be offensive toward the Brits, but you know, the stereotype seems to hold sometimes. I know we're not supposed to talk about cultural differences as if stereotypes are real, but some stereotypes are real, okay? There's a real craziness to an Italian-blooded person, not in a bat, not in an institutional way, but there's a passion and there's a real reservedness about Brits. There just tends to be. Does it mean everyone is like that? No. But, you know, so anyway, I'm saying this, why I'm explaining all this is I'm saying this coming from a place not of judgment for having shared their opinions or their feelings, but rather of sharing them on such a public platform and in such a smarmy kind of way. So we got to go back to the Oprah interview first. So I liked them. I really liked their love story. I love that she's American. I love that she has had a, a marriage in the past and that that wasn't an issue. And it's a modern love story, a mixing of cultures, of traditions. These are two very, um, you know, individually independent people coming. To, it was wonderful and beautiful, but there was just so there was just so much that went wrong since then. And I'm saying this from the point of view of an American person never invested in the royal story before. I mean, as you know, when we are raised in America, we are raised, we have allegiance to concepts and not people, right? So when you're raised in America, we are we are allegiant to the concept of freedom, to the concept of, you know, a free press and free speech and all of these great concepts that make America great. We don't have an allegiance to a 
person, a king, a queen, a prince, a princess. So I'm coming into this, like I'm sure many Americans are, with just like not much knowledge of the royal family as an institution other than it exists, right? It's weird to me that people love, it's not weird, it's just different to me that people love her. I can understand why. I can understand that she is a figurehead of stability. And I personally am a fan of the queen. And I think that, um, you know, she helped to evolve that system into some modern ways of thinking and whatever. This is not a commentary on the institution of the British monarchy, because frankly, I'm not well-versed enough in its history to under fully understand it. But just as a person, she seemed like a cool chick, you know? She was like doing independent women things before like independent women was a thing. But um, all of that to say, I, I come into this as like a true American. It was not invested whatsoever in the, in the British royal family. And I do agree that Meghan seems like she wasn't overly invested either. In fact, they kick off this... Um, what's it called, this this documentary, the first episode of the Harry and Meghan documentary with a video clip showing her being interviewed by, I believe, a Canadian broadcaster. And this broadcaster goes, so Prince William or Prince Harry? And she's like, what, who? And she goes, I don't know. So I do believe, I do believe that like most people in America or, you know, raised with American sensibilities, like we don't really care. I don't know. It was like, I don't know who's cuter. There was just like, we don't really care about this kind of stuff. And I do believe after having seen their interactions, I don't think she had a target on his back and was like, I'm going for the money. I'm going for the prince. I really don't. But what put a sour taste in my mouth before this documentary and things have changed a bit. So bear with me here as I get to the point. Um, the Oprah interview was just bad. It was bad press. It was a bad PR move. It was a bad way to re-enter the discussion after having pulled out of the monarchy. Like you want your first interview and your first public exposure after something so shocking to be relatively benign, right? Like I'm not even a PR expert and I know that if you do something that's going to shock people's system, your re-entry into like common society should be relatively chill. They should have done a ribbon cutting. They should have done a charity event where they spoke a few words. They should have eased back into the public eye in these new roles as gracious, uh, kind of evolved, like, yes, we left this behind and we're grateful for it. And we're going to talk about it later kind of thing. Instead, they come bam onto the scene, their first major public appearance since leaving the monarchy and leaving the British Royal family as these real vendetta holders, um, watching that interview, oh, gosh, I don't even know when that was, like a year ago, a year, time is, time is like a, a lie to me right now. I have no concept of where we are. But anyway, you know, she's sitting down and talking to Oprah and the whole question um, about Kate and like, well, it's actually her who made me cry. No, that's not how we answer that question. You just say, you know what? She's a woman I really respect and I prefer not to dig that back up. She said all these things that he's over there talking about his dad issues. Like, like where was, where was the personal assistant? Where was the PR expert saying, guys, you look so petty. You just let it breathe, you know? You had, a, you had an issue. You have some family. We all have family trauma. But I feel like the reason I have completely swung in the other direction was that entire Oprah interview was an exercise in a vendetta. It was a getting back at the family. It was, a, you guys going to say this about us? You're not going to protect us in the same way? You're going to, well, watch out. It was just, it felt silly. And again, this is coming from a person who fully believes in airing Air in the airing of the dirty laundry, but in the appropriate context. 
So anyway, I go into watching this documentary, like really not the biggest fans, to be honest. And I was commenting about this on Instagram yesterday. I don't know why, but I feel like I like them now. I feel like I kind of like them. I really say I understand them more. I don't know what it is, but I'm finding myself smiling when I'm watching these episodes. And I kind of hate myself for it because am I being fooled? I don't know. And then I think, oh my gosh, am I just falling victim to like the patriarchy and everybody wanting to believe that women are the diabolical halves of every hetero couple and that, you know, we should hate her and just feeling guilty for not hating her. I don't know what is happening, but I like, I kind of like her and here's why. And I heard someone articulate this point yesterday and it made so much sense to me. Number one is it's really well produced. Like the access that we get, seeing them in their elements, seeing their pictures of their family, pictures of their wedding, pictures of them and video of them as children. Like you can't hate someone. You can't, hate is a strong word. I'm using that interchangeably with dislike. Okay. So just don't at me. Um, you, you can't, you can't dislike them anymore. Like when I see a baby version of someone, I'm like, oh, that's a sweet little child. So the access we have to their lives that we haven't had before, I feel like number one, really, it just was part of me kind of like coming over to the other side. And then as I watch more and more of this footage of Megan as a child, someone made this point on a podcast I was listening to and I was like, that's it. It's clear she kind of always was who she was. I think we roll our eyes at her because how many times do we have to hear the Dawn liquid soap story? I mean, so many times. We've heard it. We get it. Uh, it felt like that felt just a little contrived. I She always, ugh, I don't know. But then you see these videos of her and you're like, actually... Megan has always been a little bit of a lovable dork. And I say that in full acknowledgement of the fact that I'm a massive dork and a nerd and a person, the, you know, the girl who was practicing my handwriting, you know, in calligraphy, like, you know, skills in my, in my lined notebook as a third grader. Like, I kind of like, uh, okay, so Megan has always been the girl who, you know, sat in the front and raised her hand first for every question. And she's always been the girl who, you know, you heard her friend in, in, I think it was middle school say she was my campaign manager when I ran for student council and she took it seriously. And you start to think, oh my gosh, this is actually who she is. Um, this like what I interpreted. And I feel like a lot of people interpreted as somewhat of an affect, this poised, presentation of herself, this taking herself so seriously. And not that that's a bad thing. I love when, I think women should take themselves seriously. I don't think we need to dumb ourselves down, but it just felt like an act until I saw, oh my gosh, this person is like actually always been like this. And it made me like her. Um, total awkward moment though, when they, um, hold on, I need a sip of my cappuccino. <laughs> mm. When they had that moment where she recreated the curtsy in front of the queen, I was like, oh. whoever was in charge of producing deliberately like pulled that shot back wide. And she's doing this over-dramatized curtsy, like, and this is what I did to the queen. And Harry's face is like, if looks could kill. It's the only moment you will see or have seen of them where there is an actual moment of discord. And it actually made me like them a little bit more because they're always, so, we love each other and we're so compatible and it was in the stars kind of thing. And then seeing this, I was like, oh, okay. They get, it on, each, get on each other's nerves too. Um, so yeah, you know, I'm going to give it a chance. I got through two of the three episodes. Here's what I'm not looking forward to. And this goes back to the discussion that we had, not the one-sided discussion that I had 
with you mere moments ago when I talked about the airing of the family laundry. I think there is a way to resolve conflict to explain one's side of the story without sounding like a whiny brat. And I say that lovingly. I, I, Prince Harry is a very likable man. And um, if anything, I see him as a wounded child who is still acting out the last moments of his trauma on a world stage. To be honest, um, whereas I see, and I'm sure many people do see Megan as a really fully realized, whether you like her or not, a fully realized woman who has had success in her career, who has had the ability to direct her own life and make her own decisions. She's fully cooked, right? Like as a person spiritually, I don't see that in Harry. And I hate to say that because it sounds judgmental from afar, but, but he leads with his, he leads with his, um, with his hurt and I feel for him. And it's actually difficult to watch someone continually go back to that point of trauma in their life and understand that they really haven't gotten past this. And listen, I don't think you ever get over the death of a loved one, especially a parent or someone in your immediate circle. But I see when I watch this documentary, when you watch the Oprah interview, he is so deeply hurt that he is acting out against the ones that he loves or the ones that are closest to him, his father, his brother, you know, other members of his, with the exception of the queen, because you can't publicly say shitty things about the queen or you're the shitty person. So I feel like he probably loved her, but he also realized, ooh, even though she's the head of this thing that I'm purporting to hate so much, I better not talk bad about her because she's the one who's actually in charge. So it should be interesting to see how he treats his father, knowing that there's some frictiousness between them and his father is now king. But that's what I see when I watch. And I just wish someone would pull him aside. And I know he's spoken openly about being in therapy and doing the work. He's do It seems like he's doing the work, but I wish someone who loves him would pull him aside and say, Harry, we need to stop now. Like you're bleeding out in front of the world. And it's, it's, it's tragic to watch. It's sad. You know, the entirety of his existence since coming to America has been exploiting his own story in a way. And I hate to say that because he has always been critical of the institution that he says, you know, the royal, um, the what do they call it? The, the firm, right? Who he thinks exploited him. But in fact, he's coming over here and he's making a narrative of his exploitation. He's making a narrative of his trauma. And it's sad. I just, I don't know, guys. I feel, I feel bad watching it. it, it he doesn't seem fully over that. In every interview he gives, it is, my mom um, was treated this way and I will never let the women or the people in my life be treated that way. And I never got over that. And I shouldn't have been walking behind her coffin as we were, you know, um, on, on the day of her funeral. It's just, he keeps coming back. And I just think the man needs true healing apart from, maybe apart from his family, but also apart from the cameras. Like he's coming out with a book and the whole book is, it's called Spare, right? Which is this sort of play on words of the heir and the spare. The heir is the exalted one, the one who's going to become king, the one who allegedly they invest the most resources and time in because they know he's going to become the functional head of, or, you know, the, the, the head of state, um, not functional, but you know what I mean? Like the symbolic head of state. So we're going to invest everything in Prince William. But Harry, you're the spare, just in case something goes wrong with William. I mean, the hurt runs so deep in Harry that he even named his book that. Like, this is very telling. This is a man who has not healed. And he just, 
what's uncomfortable for me watching this documentary, and I'm curious if you think this too, is just witnessing his hurt over and over and over again. And I see an eight-year-old boy speaking. I don't see a 40-year-old, whatever he is, 38 or 39-year-old man. I see a wounded eight-year-old boy speaking and it kills me. And I don't know. We'll get into the final three episodes. I might pop back on for another solo episode next week and kind of talk about that. But You know, knowing what's coming down in those final three episodes, which is going to purportedly be about a lot of the family drama and how, you know, they protected his brother, but didn't protect him. Like, I just feel like it's not good. I feel like it's not good. I feel like we need to leave. I feel like we need to fix that behind closed doors. And maybe, I don't know, do the royals do therapy? Do they do family therapy? Can they do family therapy? Can you imagine King Charles and his two boys? like on a couch, just working out their family drama, you know, with a, with a licensed mental health counselor. We should get them with some of the guests that have been on this show. These fantastic therapists who work people through their traumas. So anyway, the, the too long didn't read version of it all is that I'm coming around a little bit on them. I don't know. Like I said on Instagram, either this is a testament to my complete and utter gullibility. Is that right? Gullibility? It's <laughs> Is that a word? Either it speaks to the fact that I'm easily influenced, we'll say that, um, by great a great produced TV show, or it it's just, I don't know, maybe I'm just too easily influenced, but um, I think it does a great job of bringing them down to earth. I think we need less, I think we need to reunite the families in a way. I think Megan needs to be back experiencing... Um, family time with her extended... I don't really know these people. Listen, I'm talking like I know them. I just feel bad for her dad. I think she needs to be talking to her dad again. I mean, can you imagine the hurt as a parent looking and seeing your child on a world stage um, not acknowledging your existence? I mean, Harry says in this episode she doesn't have a father anymore. Actually, she does have a father. And as a parent, I'm kind of salty to hear someone's spouse get on camera and say that. Like, can you imagine if your child... And, and their spouse got on TV and their, their husband or wife was like, yeah, I'm sorry that she just doesn't have a, a mother anymore. Fuck you. Yes, she does. And I'm here. And you know, like that's how I would feel. I feel like we need, now that they've put all of their dirty laundry out there and we've aired it all and we've heard about it, we need some resolution. If you're going to sell your life as a plot line, and if you're going to s- sell access to your private life and these private moments as part of your brand and part of your story, then we need some conflict resolution here and we need a happy ending on this story. We need a white lotus moment, okay? Without the death, of course. We need to put a bow on it. We need to have these characters experience their full arc. We need a little denouement, you know what I mean? A little soft landing into a happy world for all these people who have been um, involved in this real life drama. I just, I mean, yeah, God, for someone who was like, oh, I'm not invested in the royal family. I literally spent 40 minutes talking about, um, maybe not 40, maybe 20 minutes talking about a couple I have never met and probably will never meet. But I have to know if you think the same. So let's talk. Okay. Anyway, I'm going to wrap up. I got to go drink the rest of my coffee. I got to get stuff done. And um, that's it. You guys, instant, I just said instant message me. Instant message me on my AIM. No, DM me. Let me know your thoughts. I'll put up some question prompts on Instagram too. There's just so much good TV. And I also want to know what shows you guys are watching. It would be fun to make this a thing where we can talk about all of the fun, you know, pop culture moments happening. All the things that aren't too heavy and serious that we can just kind of dig our teeth into and have some girl talk. 
right? Okay. Have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of We Gotta Talk. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and follow along on Instagram at Sunny Abata, S-O-N-N-I-A-B-A-T-T-A. All of the latest blog posts are at wegotatalk.com slash blog. Yeah.